You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. I am excited to be in Matthew 1 with you this morning. If you would, uh, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to begin in verse 1. I'm going to read... Uh, through verse 17. So if you just want to follow along with me in your Bibles, it will also be on the screen in front of you. Beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Terah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for uh, this season. Christmas, where we begin to think more deeply about you coming to this earth, a king of a kingdom, an eternal king with an eternal kingdom and an eternal throne, and yet you left that to come here in humility as a little baby so that you might live and die and leave the tomb empty and leave us the promise and the hope of eternity with you in heaven. (coughs) Lord, as we think about that more deeply in this season, as we think about that especially more deeply today, I pray, God, that you would come and speak to us. We just read this long list of names I think when we read it, it could be really easy to um, disconnect real quick, probably after the third or fourth name listed. Easy to disconnect and feel 
some sense disconnected from you and your word to us. And yet, I, we know, and I know this morning that the very purpose of your word is so that you might connect with us and speak to us. The very purpose of this season is that we might see you as a, a good eternal father who had a plan. And so, Father, what we need is we need to connect with you this morning. We need to hear from you. So, Father, I pray that you would remove anything from our presence that would seek to disconnect us from your voice. Lord, help me in these moments as I preach your word, too. Um, it's not the easiest text to preach. And on top of that, I'm a really sinful, broken man. And so, uh, could I ask that you would take my little tiny offering um, on this text, and that you would speak through it to your people, and that you would do good to us, bring glory to your name and attention to yourself. Lord, that you would transform our hearts. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'd have to say, when I, uh, when I mapped this series out a few months ago, I think it was a few weeks ago, I shouldn't say months, um, I think I had something different in mind when I first wrote um, some of my notes down in my journal. Um, and uh, I don't know if you, you know what that's like. You know, you kind of have a vision for something where you think God is taking you, and uh, maybe you write some of that down, you make a plan, and then suddenly it's like, oh, hey, that... That almost was nowhere close to where <laughs> you were planning to take me. And um, the beauty, uh, I think, about God and His Word is that you know, He sees and knows everything. And you and I, we can't see past the tips of our noses, you know? <laughs> At least I know Dave and I can't. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, I, I would have I had no clue uh, probably a few weeks ago. Um, how, for me, personally, the study of all of these weird, unintelligible names um, would, uh, would have struck me throughout the week. Um, I was thinking about uh, this list of names, and I um, was thinking about my own family experiences a little bit this week, and uh, thinking about the Christmas season. Um, I'm sure we're kind of all in some of the same, we're all in the same season, right? And kind of caught up in this beauty of Christmas, of Christmas lights. We don't have much snow. Thank you, Jesus. Um, I don't mind a little bit of snow. Um, but just the beauty of the season, the excitement of the season, the, the fun of the season, right? And family get-togethers and food and gift-giving and some of the great and glorious things of Christmas. Um, I really do love this season. And I love the fact that we celebrate Jesus this way every year. I think in years past, I've, I've tried to address things like the, um, almost like the American institution of Christmas um, and how we can kind of subvert that missionally. I mean, I know that I've gone in a bunch of different directions. I feel like as a pastor, preaching uh, holidays is a really odd thing because you only get a few texts to really preach on a holiday, <laughs> And the reality is Jesus should always be the point of the message anyways. And so, you know, you come around to the holidays after a few years of preaching through it, and it's kind of like, what do you do? 
just go start pulling sermons out of an old file and preach old ones. And uh, it's not going to be the case this morning. <laughs> That's been some of my tension. Uh, some of my wrestle, I guess, as I've looked at the text this week and thought through some things. And one of the thoughts that I landed on was this. And maybe it's something you feel too. I think there's a, maybe a question on a slide. Um, I was thinking about the tension in the Christmas season. Ever feel that tension? Especially family. <laughs> okay. uh, I love family. Um, it's one of our values here at the well, right? Our, our three values. We value the gospel. We value family. And we value the mission of God to seek and to save that which is lost. So I love family. And you know I have a large family too. We have seven children. We now have two grandchildren. Two sons-in-laws. And uh, a few other guys that are kind of hanging around. <laughs> um, Keep it PG rated, right? <laughs> so, um, experience that tension, right? Um, if you have a family, you know what tension in a family is like. And uh, something about the Christmas season has a tendency to bring that up, doesn't it? Um, and it is kind of, for me, it's one of the things that I both love and hate. I know hate's a strong word, so uh, please hear me right when I say this. Um, it's one of the things that I both love and hate about the Christmas season. Uh, it's the gift of family. Okay. Um, our family was just at a big family get-together last night. If I could work through, um, it's my mom's side of the family, if I could work through describing some of the people in our family, you'd, you'd, uh, you'd, you'd be shocked. Well, maybe you wouldn't be, I don't know. You deal with me every week, so maybe you wouldn't be shocked. It is one of the things that I both love and hate about the Christmas season, though. It's the gift of family. Um, again, it's not that I hate family, necessarily. What, what I think that I hate is some of the drama, <laughs> is some of the dysfunction, you know, the negative emotions, the negative experiences that come with being part of a family. Um, for, as much, for me, for as much as I love being with my family um, or being with uh, you know, friends who are very much like family, uh, you're spending time together, you're, you're laughing, sometimes you're arguing, <laughs> that happens too. Um, sometimes you're, you're reliving family stories uh, from the past, you know, that one time when he or she did this or that, you're reliving that, you're up late at night maybe, you're playing games, I don't know how much I enjoy playing games, my family loves playing games, I don't, um, but I get pulled into them anyways, they kind of bully me that way, just so you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit oppressed when it comes to playing games, um, <laughs> opening gifts, right, eating food. Um, some of those things I love about family, just being together. Um, even though I love those things, the Christmas season has a tendency as well to kind of reintroduce, I think, some painful memories for some, if not most of us, in some ways. Um, painful memories, loss, people who aren't there at the gathering who were last year. Um, insecurities maybe, or certain kinds of brokenness, at least for me that I wish and I long to see healed, you know, in, in my family. Um, and I'm fairly certain that this isn't uh, uh, something that's new for any of us. I think this is something that we probably all experience at, at certain levels. Um, here are some of the ways that I think we might all experience this. If I can try to capture some categories that might catch maybe where you're at this morning as you walked in. Um, maybe you experience <clears throat> like this simultaneous 
um, joy on the one hand, being with your loved ones, you celebrate the birth of Jesus, and then at the same time as you're experiencing that joy, you're also experiencing, again, like I said a minute ago, maybe the pain of losing a loved one, somebody who died recently in the last few years. Um, or maybe, maybe you have a deep desire to reconcile with a loved one who's been estranged from you um, for a long time. So it can be that simultaneous feeling of joy and pain, joy and loss, joy of the joy and then the desire to reconcile something that is out of your power and out of your control. These are emotions that we would experience in the Christmas season. Not just the Christmas season, but at other times. But for some reason, a Christmas season or a holiday season will kind of reawaken those. The parts of my family tree, if you could see my family tree, like I said a few minutes ago, there's parts of my family tree um, that if you could see them look pretty sketchy. Um, and there's other parts of my family tree that look kind of out of place. Some that look pretty good, right? Again, uh, and Donnie and I were talking about this earlier. We were like, well, I wonder who the crazy uncle is in each of our families, you know? <laughs> it's like, well, what if I'm the crazy uncle? <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> it could be. I don't know. Maybe to some people. <laughs> um, there are times, I think, for me, when it comes to this gift of family during the Christmas season, there's times when I find uh, great comfort. You ever feel that sense of comfort uh, being with some of your family members? Like you really long to see that one family member. And you just, when you get with them, you're like, man, there's some comfort in this. And then I think there's also times where maybe uh, feel extremely uncomfortable with others, right? So you can kind of get this, that, that kind of that tension starts to get pulled there. My sense is, if I've diagnosed us as humans rightly, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that we could probably all work through a bunch of memories where you kind of get this really complex emotional overload, you know, it kind of hits its peak at some point during the Christmas season. Um, I think we all have these stories of a sense of peace contracted with utter chaos going on in our family. I uh, probably wax eloquent about all the mind-boggling feelings of some of the security you, you may feel around some people while you've got this other feeling of an absolute sense of fear around others. Um, this is the kind of tension that I think is present in our families at times, and the Christmas season happens to bring that up. Now, you can flip to the other side of the road for a minute, too, and talk about those who maybe um, don't have much in the way of family or friends, Right? during the Christmas season. Um, and and I, I know there are some who are in that boat. And in some sense, you may feel mm, almost a, a sense of peace. Like, well, I don't think, well, I don't have to deal with that big fat mess, right? Um, while at the same time, there can be a, a sense of peace and thankfulness. There, there's all, there can also be a sense of a real deep loneliness at the same time. So I'm just... I'm hoping maybe that kind of stirs us up a little bit to think about that for a few moments. Where have you been at in this kind of big melting pot of the gift of family and the tension between the love and the hate and the, the negative and the positive, the hardship and the good stuff in this season? Um, where have you been walking through that um, over the last week? And as you head into this coming week, as we head into Christmas, what are you walking into what is it inside of your soul maybe that's starting to kind of wake up to some of those realities? 
I think about this, and one of the questions that I ask when I think about this is I ask, why would God put us in these kinds of complex situations? Why would God put us into this kind of a, almost a complex mess, right? Now, I realize, I preach every week, right? And so I realize the easy, pat, Christian answer it's the human race is broken. Sin. Mic drop, walk away, right? That's true. It's definitely true. Sometimes I think we as Christians have a tendency to address really painful, broken places of life with this big caption of sin and just leave it at that in some like really cold, kind of unfeeling sort of a way, if you know what I mean? Like there the Bible says it, there it is deal with it, that kind of feeling. The thing about humanity is we're very complex, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, that answer's true. We live in a really broken world because of sin, and I get that. That doesn't stop us as humans from asking really good questions that I, I don't think are too big for God's shoulders, right? It's not just like, why does God leave me in this mess? not just that. It's also like, why doesn't God step in right now and fix this? And that's a legit question that causes deep down inside a bit of a bitterness or hurt at times, doesn't it? Or a bit of coldness, distance maybe, mistrust when you begin to wonder. He's a good father, but he hasn't fixed this. Yeah, I know we all have our ways of explaining these things away, but those are just like some of the, I think, really honest questions I ask at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning when I can't sleep because I'm wrestling through some kind of thing that God hasn't fixed yet. And then, and then you just add all the spiritual mess into that too where Satan will just come and get you like, who are you to even question God about that? Are you, do you even know your father? You get those words of guilt and shame and... I mean, it just, it's a convoluted mess, right? That's the mess, I think, of humanity, unless you're just checked out and medicated. Follow me? Uh, you, you can medicate all that stuff away. Drugs, alcohol, porn, illicit relationships, veg out behind the TV for hours. Um, and you and I both know that stuff still is going to come back up, Right? That's the mess that I think I was <laughs> thinking about and kind of stuck in this week. And, you know, you might be like, I have no clue what this happens to do with the text we just read. And initially, I think I was thinking the same thing. Like, I'm not sure if I can get my own personal jacked up mess away from the text that I'm about to preach but then I sat down and started to really study through this genealogy. I read through this seemingly boring list of names, okay? Unintelligible names that if I could describe them to me, it kind of feels like somebody else's really far removed family tree written in a book down in some dingy old basement. That's the way I kind of connect with it. I mean, if we're gonna be honest, 
when we do, any of you that do uh, the Bible in a year reading plans, or you're studying with a group of other people, you're studying through the Gospels. When you get to a genealogy, you don't spend a lot of time on it. You just, uh, I'm going to move on to this part of the text. It's not something that most of us would naturally gravitate to getting anything spiritual out of. And I think it's okay to just admit that and, and go, you know, this is a text that we would not immediately connect with. And yet, it's God's word. It's God's word. And it's far more. It's far more than just a list of names in a dingy old basement. Feels that way. Feels like a list of cold names. Looks like a picture of a family tree that seems pretty foreign. Feels like something maybe we don't relate to. Begin to wonder, like, why does this family tree matter? Right? It's a good place to start. Why does this family tree matter? What purpose does this family tree serve? And then what am I supposed to do with it? What am I actually supposed to do with this family tree? Studying some of the commentary this week on this family tree, and I came across this really solid, really thought-provoking outline. It was very catchy um, on this family tree, um, and I think it's helpful. Um, this author that, that I was reading, um, his basic argument is that Matthew here in these verses, he wants to establish Jesus as the Savior King of the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's really the big idea. <coughs> and it's really the big idea of Matthew's gospel. It's all about the king, all about the kingdom. And Jesus is that redeeming king. His outline sounds like this. This author argues that in this genealogy, what you find is that Jesus, number one, has the right uh, family line. Uh, number two, he came at the right time. And number three, he came according to the right design. So it was so catchy and so good. He did such a great job with it that I thought, I'll never come anywhere close. <laughs> <coughs> so I'm just going to rip off some of his language and summarize some of his arguments. And then my hope then is to make some application at the end and answer that question, why does this even matter? Like, what are we to do with this now that we understand some of this? So think about... Think about the right line, the right time, and the right design of Jesus' family tree. Okay? Just think about that for a moment. <clears throat> when Matthew ties Jesus' family line to David and Abraham in verses 1, 2, and 6, when he does that, what he's doing is he's teaching us that Jesus is literally the fulfillment of God's promises to both Abraham and to David. So get those two characters in your mind for a minute. Jesus is literally the fulfillment of God's promises to both Abraham and to David, okay? God over here to Abraham had promised to make Abraham's descendants a blessing to the entire world in Genesis 12, okay? That's God's promise to Abraham. And then, and then he also promised to David, he promised to establish his throne, the throne of King David for all of eternity through one of his descendants. And he made that promise in 2 Samuel 7. And then furthermore, add to that, Jesus also came from the right bloodline within the right tribe, the tribe of Judah, according to verse 3. I mean, there were 12 tribes that Jesus could have come through. 
But the prophecies all pointed to the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so you tie those promises together with the tribe, and you see the bloodline all the way through, and you just say, man, at the end of the day, what you see in this family tree is that Jesus came simply from the right line, the right bloodline. Secondly, Matthew wants us to know and to see that Jesus came at the right time. Timing's a funny thing. We all have our ideas of what we believe the timing should be when God steps in, right? God has his own timing. <laughs> um, author, as I was reading him, he said, wouldn't it have been a better time for Jesus to come now when you got Facebook and YouTube and yada, yada, yada? I mean, everybody would know what happened, right? And he makes the comment that uh, there have been news reporters right there um, covering the entire thing, probably spinning half of it anyways, but they would have been there. Um, they would have been there in Bethlehem when Jesus was born, right? I mean, you would have just seen this thing unfolding. Um, and the, the commentator made a really good point. That, no, actually, maybe he came at the right time simply because that stuff wasn't available. Um, so what Matthew wants us to see, though, is that he came at the right time in human history. And he came at the right time in human history to fulfill God's redemptive plan. Now, this is pretty fascinating, Okay. Um, he came at the right time in human history to fulfill God's redemptive plan according to the generational timeline in verse 17. So you jump ahead and look at verse 17 for a minute. There is a generational timeline there. If you go back to the book of Ezra where we've been studying, we've been studying the second set of 17 years, if I'm not incorrect, or maybe it's the third. We'll get there in a minute. We're in one of those sets of 17 years. Um, Sorry, 14 years. I better quit saying 17. It's in verse 17. talks about 14 years, three sets, right? That generational timeline in verse 17, this is a fascinating piece. Uh, it kind of oddly correlates to the numerical value of David's name in the Hebrew. You're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know that it means anything, but it's memorable. Um, David's name in, in the Hebrew, if you take the numerical value of each letter of his name and you add them together, guess what the numerical value is? Anybody got it? 14. Very nice. Very good. So David's name numerically valued the number 14. And you'll see that Matthew mentions 14 how many times? Three times. So one, this one author said it's like the letter N. Okay? It's like the letter N. You have the first um, part of the, of the N, the first leg, and it's coming upwards towards King David. Right? That's the first 14-year generation. Ends at King David, verse 6. The next 14-year generation uh, really heads downward into Babylonian captivity. Right? I mean, that's a downward spiral. So that's your, that's your downward part of your end. And then the last 14-year generation, which is probably where we're at in Ezra, okay, uh, that last 14-year generation heads upwards again, and it ends with Jesus, who is our redeeming king, arriving on the scene in verse 16, right? So this is just some memorable things as you're thinking about um, the time, the timeline. Um, what Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus definitely came not just from the right bloodline, but he also came at the right time 
to be our redeeming king. <coughs> the last thing Matthew wants us to see um, is the design of Jesus' family tree. And it's fascinating to me as I look at it. When you think about the design of Jesus' family tree, um, if you've been in our house, uh, you'd see that my wife Christy painted a family tree on the wall. It's a huge family tree. Painted it black. It's my favorite color. We can argue later about whether it's really a color or not or whether it's actually all the colors in one, but it's black either way. It's like my truck, and I'll mention my motorcycle too because Donnie says I mentioned that too much. Well, you've never said that. I shouldn't throw you under the bus like that. Anyways, we have a family tree on our wall. We got pictures on this family tree of our family members. Um, and Christy designed it. You know, she projected the picture on the wall. She, she painted it. Uh, she drew the outlines. She, she put the nails in the right places. She kind of designed the pictures that she wanted hung up there. And, and she put it there. Um, it's not like Jesus' family tree just fell together out of happenstance. There is a plan from the beginning of time for the design of this family tree. And the reality about Jesus' family tree and the design of it is it's designed with the right people in the tree. Okay? Now, at first glance, you and I would go, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> if I were to design the family tree, and again, this is the issue, my timing, my design would look a whole lot different than what God does. I would not have put the people in the family tree that God put in the family tree to bring the Savior into the world. I would put people who were not questionable. (laughs) And uh, God chose a way differently to design the family tree by which his son would come into the world. The first thing you might note is there's five women in the tree. There's Tamar in verse 3. got Rahab in verse 5. you got Ruth in in verse 5. You got Bathsheba, who is alluded to, uh, in verse 6. Then you have Mary in verse 16, which is, the whole thing is fascinating. I could stand here and probably dig into it for far too long for you. Um, But some of the things that you might think about when you notice the women in the tree that Matthew mentions, it reminds us that God absolutely bestows dignity upon both male and female alike. Um, But it also shows us that God loves to bring something pure out of something very dirty. Um, And this this truth, this fact is highlighted in the stories of the majority of these women in the tree. Um, At least three of the women mentioned in this family tree were, how would you say, I have in my notes, especially sexually sinful. I might just say engaged in Um, some pretty deep, dark sexual sin. Um, Quick cliff notes, Tamar in uh, verse 3. If you were to go back and you read Genesis 38, it's actually a chapter that almost seems out of place in the Bible. Um, Genesis 38, Tamar, she is the daughter-in-law of Jacob. She dresses up like a prostitute and seduces him and then has his babies. They're in the family tree. That's Grandma Tamar. Okay. That's the way the commentators said. I thought it was very catchy. So I'm just going to, not, hardly anything ever originates with me, just so you know. Grandma Tamar is in the tree. That's, that's the story that's getting told around the dinner table while you're drinking hot cocoa or whatever you were drinking. Okay. Rahab 
It could be empty Rahab, maybe. Um, hey, I don't know how she said that Rahab was a hooker. That's, uh, that's who Rahab was. Joshua, chapter 2. The great thing about Rahab is uh, Hebrews 11, James 2, both point to Rahab as being a very godly woman, a woman who was full of faith-filled actions. That's, uh, that's Rahab. And yet, she was a prostitute. Now, Bathsheba is alluded to. Now, Bathsheba for me is a very touchy one. Touchy because a lot of men in uh, theological circles have uh, made Bathsheba into something that I don't think she was. Um, they would take the story of Bathsheba, if you've never heard it, Bathsheba is bathing naked on a housetop, which is much lower than David, the king's housetop, and he can see her, and he's suddenly attracted to her and fetches her, and the rest is history, so to speak. She's a married woman, and uh, she gets pregnant with David's kid, right? And then uh, David conspires to have her husband murdered and, and eventually follows through with it, and then Solomon um, after the first baby that they have dies, then Solomon is born. That's where Solomon comes from, is from this uh, illicit relationship. Now, <clears throat> I, I say I, I'm, I'm sensitive about this one because um, there are plenty of theologians that I think have read more into the text than you should read into it and have made Bathsheba out to be a, a woman who was seducing David. Um, uh, I just, her housetop was lower than King David's palace as would be true of all housetops next to King David's palace. Uh, the reality, and as I've preached often and believe often, is that what David did was used his power and political authority um, to politically rape a woman. That's the way I've put it. I know that's harsh. Um, that's what he did. Could she have said no? Yes, and she would have died probably. That's the truth. The only thing that I can say is that at this stage in the game, Bathsheba is definitely no Queen Esther. Um, but I cannot place a lot of blame on Bathsheba. What I can say, though, and I think this is true, is that Bathsheba was definitely involved in an illicit sexual relationship, and she is in Jesus' family tree. Okay? Now, hopefully I explain that um, sensitively. <laughs> um, I have, uh, most of you know, I have six daughters, and so whenever I get to speak on a, a male or, or a woman in scripture and what is being done. Uh, I'm very sensitive to that, uh, knowing that men have been given a responsibility to care for women, for sure, just as women have been given a responsibility to care for men, too. And so uh, it's a both end. That's complimentary, I think. So you get that story, right? That's all in Jesus' family tree. So, you know, Go back to your Christmas get-together now. <laughs> what kind of stories are being told? Man, <laughs> like, I mean, there's probably a niece or a nephew who are saying, like, man, do you know that story of David and Bathsheba? David's in the family tree, bro. <laughs> like, if you know the story of David, I say this all the time, I think the dude was, I mean, I, I think if they make his life into a movie, it's the Godfather movies. I, I really believe that. Last thing he does on his deathbed, Solomon, come here. You see those two guys over there? You make sure you take them out before you take the throne. And that's the way it goes. And then he dies, and Solomon goes, okay. And then takes the throne. <laughs> that's the last move on David's part. So it's not just the women that are in the family tree, okay? God, while he does bestow um, equal dignity, <laughs> I think God also bestows 
or at least highlights equal brokenness, okay? Like we're all broken. It's the, it's the great thing. The men are no better. Start with Abraham. Abraham is a liar, okay? Uh, Judah, Judah sold his brother into slavery, his brother Joseph, right? Like, what a scoundrel. So, I mean, my son, Lewis. <laughs> my son, Lewis, I mean, he has six sisters, so, you know, you, you got to forgive the kid. But he did try selling his sisters for 30 bucks <laughs> from time to time. And I think he almost had one sold. <laughs> but uh, and it was nothing like that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think Lewis was tired of having six sisters, and I feel bad for him. I do. Consequently, all my daughters right now are having boys, and I'm sure Lewis is probably going to have a bunch of girls just like I did. Um, <laughs> Judah, though, okay. Judah. Judah is <laughs> the tribe that Jesus came out of, is named after Judah. You follow me? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the scoundrel who sold Joseph into slavery. You talk about that guy at the family table, right? You believe Judah? Like, do you, do you remember the story about when Judah did that? Like, what a, jeez, Louise. Um, David, touched on him enough. He's an adulterer, right, and a murderer. Murdered his best friend. <coughs> Put a hit out on guys when he was dying. Solomon, I don't know if you're very familiar with the story of Solomon. Solomon's in the family tree, okay. <laughs> Solomon had more, I don't know why you want to have more than one wife. I love my wife. I can't foresee trying to love another wife, too. Um, I, I, vice versa, couldn't see it the other way. I don't know why you want to have multiple husbands. None of that makes any sense to me at all. Solomon had more wives than you and I could even imagine. I mean, Solomon had more wives than I think he could even be in bed with every night of the year. Like, it's just, it's a ridiculous amount of number of wives. On top of that, he married women who worshipped foreign gods, and then he um, built shrines. He built church buildings so that people could come and worship False gods. That guy is in the family tree as well. Um, Hezekiah. There's a name but most of us probably aren't very familiar with. Okay, Hezekiah, um, at the end of the day, um, he was so proud. He was so happy about all the good things he did. Um, he was full of pride. He, he made lists of his good deeds. Ultimately, ultimately Jesus comes, as one commentator said, Jesus comes from a family tree that is full of criminals and vagabonds. And again, if I was going to design the family tree, I wouldn't have written it like that. If I was going to have somebody famous pop up on the scene that was going to be like, everybody's ooh and ah and save your new president of the United States or something, ruler of the world, I want him to come from a great bloodline. Um, one illustration that was used as well is when you look at royalty from other nations. Um, boy, they get a lot of attention when they don't marry other royalty, right? Um, that's, that's the design of, of God. That's how God designs Jesus' family tree. And I think it's meant to remind us that Jesus came to redeem sinners just like you and me. I, we can look at Jesus' family tree and go, man, there's only one dude that's perfect in that family tree. <laughs> only one. That's what that's meant to remind us. It's only one perfect guy, right? But the question is, now that we know these things about Jesus' family tree, the question is, what do we do? 
What do we do with Jesus' family tree in this season? As I mentioned earlier, the Christmas season, I think, can be a time of both great joy and great pain, great comfort and great fear, right? And as we prepare to celebrate the birth of our Savior this Christmas, I think we not only look inward at our own family, but I think we wind up looking out into a world that is full of unrest. It's, it's full of brokenness. There are, are things in this world that I think rightly make our hearts grieve. There are things in this world, things that we see outside of us, that we look at and we long for healing, we long for wholeness. We look for something to be fixed in the midst of the brokenness. And, and here's the thing, if I can say this too, things weren't much different in Matthew's timeline. The world that he lived in wasn't much different. You go to my Facebook page and find a video that I think I posted yesterday. It's brutal. I was going to show it, but it's, it's almost too brutal. Some of the things I've said this morning already are probably too brutal for some of us. But you, there's a video on some of the history, what was going on when Jesus was born. It's bad. We think this is bad. It was bad then. Just a couple of highlights. The religious landscape was full of division. Okay, you had Pharisees who loved their Bibles more than anything else. Literally loved their Bibles more than anything else, which means they didn't love Jesus. Okay, they didn't love their Bibles right, if that makes any sense. You had Sadducees who didn't love their Bibles and liked to like make things up. So now you got conservatives and liberals. Right? Okay. Uh, you have zealots. Zealots are the guys who want to fight. We'll strap on the machine guns and go fight with the American flag or whatever flag wrapped around my Bible and take everybody out. That was your zealots. Um, you had Essenes. Essenes were the guys who were like, nah, screw it, I'm out of here. I'm going to go hang out in the woods, eat some locusts and some honey, and I'm going to commune with God on top of a post like a monk. Okay, so those are your four major denominations that Jesus came into the culture with. That was your religious landscape. No matter what you think of any of those four groups, that was your four domineering groups then, okay? My description of them is my own description. You might describe it a little bit differently, but that is pretty close, I think. Political atmosphere, what do you think the political atmosphere looked like in Jesus' day? Man, it was wretched. It was wretched because it was under Roman rule, all right? It was deeply oppressive. How about society? What do you think society looked like then? Well, it was very broken, okay? I think it was very, very heartbreaking if you think about it. Some of the things that I know about the culture then was there was deep, deep poverty, and there was a huge disconnect between those who were impoverished and those who had any kind of wealth whatsoever. Deeper than probably what we see in our American timeline. Very, very broken. Lots and lots of poverty. Also, abortion back then, you didn't have abortion clinics. You just had piles of babies dying in the middle of the street. That's what they did. Quite a bit different than today. Bad, broken, sinful, disgusting. Corporal punishment, you didn't really have prison cells, you had some. What you actually have is you had crucifixion. You do something bad, they deem you worthy of death, die on a cross. There's much more I could say about the culture, but that's what would have made it on Fox or CNN, whichever news outlet you espouse to, um, in the background of all that brokenness. In the background of all of that brokenness, God the Father had been quietly working. <laughs> Damn it. I thought I'd make it through one without crying. 
in the background of all that brokenness, that mess. The mess that I'm pretty sure if we would have saw in person, we would have said, God, why don't you fix this? God, the Father had been working quietly in a carefully crafted plan to bring his son, a redeeming king, into this world. It wasn't like the brokenness and the sin of this world caught God by surprise. And it was like, what do I do now? Had a plan from the get-go to bring his redeeming son into this world in the most humiliating way. He would arrive as a naked baby instead of arriving with all the pomp and circumstance of a wealthy, famous person. He would be born to a poor virgin. (laughs) Who would believe that she was a virgin if they knew anything about the women in his family tree to begin with. Who would believe it? His first bed would be a feeding trough in a little out-of-the-way barn, some muddy back road instead of the Hilton Hotel. Into that mess of human depravity and brokenness that we just talked about, into our mess of human depravity, into our mess of brokenness, family systems. Jesus literally condescends. He comes down from his eternal heavenly throne so that he can then be our redeeming king. Into that mess, into whatever mess you and I walked in here with this morning, into that mess, Jesus literally becomes the seed from the book of Genesis that will crush the serpent's head. It fascinates me that from day one, God had a plan to use sex to bring the Savior into the world. We don't think about that. And you see how that part of our existence has been so prostituted, for lack of a better word, from day one. Jesus becomes the seed that will crush the serpent's head. He becomes a descendant of Abraham who will bless the nations through his life and his death and his resurrection. And in the midst of that, he establishes the throne of David for all of eternity when he walks out of that grave. So so if the question is, what are we supposed to do with Jesus' family tree in this season, I, I would answer that question with a couple of application questions. What are you supposed to do with this family tree? Think about these questions instead. Where do you feel like an outsider right now? Like you just don't fit. What is it that causes you to grieve like you're waiting on God's timing for something to be restored? What is it in your life that makes you feel too filthy, too broken, too worthless to be loved by God? I want you to think about these questions again. I want to press into them for just a moment. Where do you feel like an outsider right now? Like you just don't fit in. And what is it that causes you to absolutely grieve? What is it that makes you lose sleep? Like you're, you're waiting on God's timing for something to be restored and it hasn't happened yet. What is it in your life that makes you feel too filthy, too broken, too worthless to be loved by God? 
Because in the midst of the insanity of this broken world that we live in, Jesus came from the right bloodline. He came at the right time, and he came according to the right divine design, right? To be a redeeming king. He would call outsiders his brothers and his sisters. He would restore prodigals and runaways to the heavenly father. You know that picture of the father at the, the end of the driveway, you know? Do, do you know what it's like to be a prodigal, a runaway, and to have your father welcome you? And do you know what it's like to have a prodigal in your life that you're longing to see come back? This is the reason Jesus came. He claim, came to cleanse the filthy of their stains, to restore value and dignity to rebels and criminals, prostitutes, people just like you and me. This is why Jesus came. What a family tree, right? Isn't it crazy? How a list of names that I typically just read past and feel like, man, there's really nothing there. Can you imagine the family reunion in heaven? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine how surprised you might be to see, <laughs> we're talking about the crazy uncle, uh, who, who, you know, whoever that is, maybe that's you or me. <laughs> Can you imagine seeing that crazy uncle right alongside your beloved grandma or your beloved mom? Imagine meeting David, the adulterer, the murderer, Bathsheba, Tamar. The seducer of her father-in-law, Jacob, the liar, right? Rahab, the hooker, Solomon, the polygamous and idolater, Abraham, the cowardly wife sellout. That's really who he was, right? The list goes on and on and on and on. And yet, at the end of the day, all those titles I just attached to them have been transformed, changed, like in an instant, blink of an eye. When God looks at us, our sins are... Cast as far as the east is from the west, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Our filthy, dirty robes have been replaced with brand new white robes. We're no longer God's enemies. We're now his sons and daughters. We're no longer runaways. We're in the family. Like, we're in the tree. We got a past. But if you trusted in Jesus, this is who you are, right? And that's what the family reunion looks like. Looking ahead. But don't forget about Jesus, right? It's not just all those people in the family tree. Jesus is the point of the family tree anyways, right? He is the eternal redeeming king who, like I said, came into this broken world and he did it through the right bloodline. He came at the right time and it's according to the right design, as I said earlier, right? And he did all of this so that he could be crucified, so that he could die horribly as an innocent man, the only innocent man who ever lived, so that he could die for criminals in his family tree. So that he could run out of the grave on the third day. So that he could establish his authority over Satan's sin and death once and for all. Did all this so that he could resume then his rightful place on the throne next to the right hand of God the Father from where he has promised to return and bring his family home and then vanquish his enemies forever. That's the story. It's a story in a nutshell. It's the message of the gospel. So no matter how much of an outsider I am, 
no matter what earthly brokenness I step into this pulpit and long for God to restore in my family, uh, no matter how jacked up my family tree is or yours, one of the things that we can do together is we can behold Jesus' family tree. We can take comfort in this truth that in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus, his shed blood, his broken body, his work at the cross, his empty tomb, his promise of heaven, if we've trusted in him, we can take comfort that in Christ, we have an eternal father who has loved us since before the foundations of the earth were laid. Before inanimate objects were made, he thought of you and I as his children. And he sent his son to then die in our place to be victorious over our enemies, to give us once again the promise of heaven. The reality then, if that's you, if you share that with me this morning, that our names are in Jesus' family tree, right alongside other criminals, other sexual perverts, other murderers, other liars, cowards, rebels, and runaways. Amen? Amen. You stand with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray as we close, God, that you would draw us to the foot of your cross. Pray that you would... Do a work of healing in places that are broken and hurting. Bring comfort where needed. Bring rest where needed. Do a work of transformation, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.